Well, if you're new or visiting, uh, we're in the book of Ephesians, so go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word. Um, We're not going to have Scripture on the screen, so you can follow along in your copy, or if you didn't bring a copy, you can grab a pew Bible, and I believe that the pew Bible uh, number for that is going to be pages 977, 978, somewhere in there. Um, So you can find it there if you want to turn to it. Today what we're going to talk about is Unity in the Church, a user manual for the body of Christ. Uh, Maybe when you get a new product, maybe you're one of those people who reads through the user manual from cover to cover and knows exactly what you're getting as soon as you get into it. Maybe if you're someone like me, uh, you tend to acknowledge that there is a user manual or a manual to help you put the IKEA product together. And instead what you do is you throw that into the drawer... Uh, for future reference, maybe, and instead you just kind of tackle it head on. Uh, Maybe that's out of pride for you. Maybe that's out of uh, education or or, uh, ability to put things together. There was a time period in our life where I got really, really good at putting all kinds of things together because as you know, if you've ever had a a child, especially if you've ever had a child for the first time, people give you a bunch of things or there's a lot of things that you think that you need and it's after like your second, your third, your fourth, you realize what you actually need, um, which is a lot less. Uh, But I remember buying things like changing tables and cribs and pack and plays and you know playground equipment and all these things and eventually I got really good at just kind of winging it and putting it th- putting things together right yeah, uh, maybe if you've had kids you're like that too but as we think about user manuals as a whole sometimes uh, we really need them and other times not so much well here is a illustration for you uh, this is an illustration of what I perceive it to be a, a tank or some kind of a motorized vehicle and so you can see here uh, on this, it's got all kinds of parts, right? You've got the, the axle and the wheels there. You've got over here, my favorite, you've got the gunner section and the small little guns to put on top of there. You've got, you've got the um, treads, I think is what they're called there. And, and, and even for the gun itself, you can see this is how you put the gun together. It's got tons of, of little parts. And if you're noticing correctly, some of this is even written in, in another language for us. That's there for your convenience in case you are, are multilingual, right? And, and, and again, you can see that this is step, you know, it looks like seven, eight, nine, six, which is really makes sense that it's down here after nine, you know, and, and so um, very, very helpful instructions, right? And, and so this is one of those instructions that maybe seems a little too difficult for us. And so if you're anything like me, your, your use for instruction manuals or user manuals in the past usually has a couple of ways that you can use them. And sometimes maybe they look like this. Uh, Sometimes maybe they look like, you know, you get your product, you're excited about it. You begin to look at the instructions and don't understand them. And so you call customer service uh, only to be left uh, completely still without a clue. So you spend a lot of time all day and most of your night as your wife wonders when it is you're going to be done only to find you sleeping with the product in the morning after all of your coffee that still didn't keep you awake. And so maybe that's your experience with user manuals. There's another experience that sometimes we can have with user manuals, unfortunately. Um, and, And sometimes it's like this. You understand that you can't do it by yourself. And so you call your buddy or maybe your dad or maybe your brother, uh, somebody else who you think knows, right? That's why they got the pencil in their ear. And you begin to look at the instructions and neither one of you truly understands what's going on. And so like good Christians that we are, we tend to say things that maybe we shouldn't to one another. And of course that breaks down a relationship and then we're left with, of course, a pile of boards. And so maybe that's your use with instruction manuals. 
Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mounts of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessings, life forevermore. And so the the reason we're going to talk about the church user manual today is because I don't want your experience with church to be like either of those other things. And also, we want to cover the user manual of church because, well, Paul thinks we should, first and foremost. It's, it's the authoritative word of God, and that's why we're going to cover it. But also because I think sometimes we think either church is really, really complicated, like the first illustration, or like it takes a long time for it to be of any use at all, or that it's always somehow broken because of broken relationships. And I, I want you to be encouraged this morning. That's, that's not how it has to be. That's not how Paul wants it to be. That's not how Christ designed it to be. And so I think it's good for us. As Paul moves us, we're going to move with him. He's done a lot of theology teaching, and now he's moving into application. So four through six of the rest of Ephesians is all going to be, okay, we're new in Christ. This is who we are in Christ. What does that look like? And so this is the beginning of this user manual of where the rubber meets the road um, in this section. So whatever in your life, there's always user manuals. This is written by Paul Ballard, who is the managing director of 3DI. This is a company that specializes in technical writing. They are the ones who are responsible for saying things like, on the McDonald's coffee cup, caution, liquid inside this is hot, right? So he understands this too. Wherever you are in life, there's always a manual somewhere hidden behind the scenes. So some of these manuals are frustrating. Some are a pleasure. But all of them, as we read through them, reveal a lot more about us than we might like to think that needs to be revealed. So without further ado, let's pray and then we'll jump into God's word this morning. God, our Father, we do thank you that you have given us this user manual for your church, that you have uh, called us to this unified body of believers. And you know as well as we do, but you know even better than us that sometimes this is hard and sometimes it's messy, sometimes it's difficult. But the way that you have designed it is beautiful. And so help us with whatever preconceived notions we might have had about church and the body of believers or what that looks like, what that means for us. Help us as we look at this scripture that we might be encouraged to not just put this user manual in the drawer, but rather study it so that this product, this church, which is more than a product, it's a body, might function in the way that you have called it to for our good, but also for your glory. So that's what we ask for this morning. Help us, we pray. It's in your name. Amen. And so the first section that I want you to look at here, hold on a minute. This is supposed to be scrolling and it's not. There we go. We're better now. Happy boy. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 is the first section of scripture. And the heading that I have for that is this, that you are made for unity. You are made for that. Uh, Not even Ephesians, but going back to Genesis It says that God created male and female in his image, that he wanted a group of people, not just one type of people. And also out of that, then you see that they were supposed to conquer the earth, have children and multiply this image of God. And so we were always created. And then then look at God himself, right? God the Father was the one who was designing creation. God the Son, it says later in scripture, was the one who was the purpose driver of that. And then the Spirit was there over the waters and was the, the power of God hovering over this 
through all creation. We see the Trinity of God. We see that in the text here, and Paul's talked about that already in Ephesians. We see that God is a God of multiple, uh, multiple persons, but one being. And so he has made us in his image to be multiple people, but one body. We were made for unity. But look with me at the current text, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. So Paul, who already introduced himself to us, Paul, we kind of know Paul. Paul is this apostle. Paul was uh, redeemed and restored and called by Christ on the, road to, uh, on the road to Damascus, a persecutor of the church. Now is then called to be a, a witness to the Gentiles. This is who he says he is. And, and notice what he says here. He charges us, urge you, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. This term walk isn't just a strut. It's not just a physical stroll. In Scripture, oftentimes we kind of maybe misunderstand these words. He doesn't just mean that we have a physical journey to go somewhere to become a Christian. What he means is our everyday life, the way that you live your lives. So he's using the term walk here. And maybe some of you know that and you're thinking, why are you reminding us of this? Because obviously Paul needs to remind us of this. So this is just in the way that we interact with each other, the way we live our lives day to day. Life of practice is how this could be interpreted. So I urge you to let your life of practice be in a manner worthy of the calling. Worthy here is then this illustration of scales or an equivalent. Think of, I don't know, Spartacus in the great Colosseum, right? Wanting a worthy opponent. Want somebody who who's matches your own strength, your own resolve, your own ability. I mean, just think for a minute, if I were to step in the ring with Mike Tyson, not a worthy opponent, but he says here, I I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, not of Rome, although we know that that's where he is, although he's chained to a Roman soldier, although he he is there under house arrest, he is not a prisoner of Rome, he is a prisoner of the Lord, and he says there, I want to also, you Ephesians, you Alleghenians, I want to urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. So what kind of calling are you called to? That's probably the next question, right? So if, if he wants us, if he wants you and me to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, then what is that calling of which he has called us to? That's the question we should be asking. And so he says that in verses two and three, with all humility. This word for humility is this word of lowliness. In the New Testament, this word was redeemed. Originally, this word had a bad meaning. This was the idea of slavish, menial labor being subjugated by someone else. A lowly personality, a lowly spirit. In Christ, this became a virtue. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, who through, uh, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But instead, it says in 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of mankind. And so firstly, he tells us, you you know, the first step is, and I'm going to read 2 and 3, and then we're going to cover it in, in the individual words, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so firstly, he says, I want you to be humble with one another, thinking of yourselves not too high and not too low, but just 
right. Remember, we talked about that just recently too. But then he also goes on and he says, I want you to be gentle in gentleness. In gentleness, this is this word for being meek. And if you remember, um, these are all, by the way, things that Jesus himself talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. You can look back there. That's uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the whole Sermon on the Mount there. Chapter 5 is the first section where the blessed be those, okay? And so this gentleness is this meekness. This word meekness is what is used of something like a domesticated animal. So for example, a water buffalo or a bull is power under control. They can use that to till the field, you know, like a draft horse. They can use that to till the field or to pull a tree stump out of the ground. Or you can put your little girl on it and allow it to ride around the farm. This is power under control, gentleness. As Mitten, uh, this is a, a commentator, puts it, meekness is the spirit of one who is so absorbed in seeking some worthy goal for common good that he or she refuses to be deflected from it by slights, injuries, or insults directed at themselves personally, or indeed by personal considerations of any kind. So let me rephrase that in case I lost you during that quote. Mitten in the, uh, I don't know what commentary that was. It's got the acronym there. My military days are done, so I don't remember. But the spirit of the one who is so absorbed in speaking, in seeking what is good that they are not dissuaded when others cajole them or irritate them. Power under control. The next thing he goes on there with gentleness, humility is patience. This is a godly trait. Again, you can find it in the Sermon on the Mount. This is steadfastness in the enduring of suffering. Or as we might, depending on the translation that you're reading, is to be long-suffering with one another. I want for you to understand that what that implies is suffering. It implies being irritated. So if you come to a church and expect to never be slighted by anyone who's there, then tell me about that church when you find it, will you? (laughs) Um, and then when you tell me about that church, as soon as I attend there, or as soon as one of you go there, it will no longer be a perfect church. And, and so what we're looking for, what we often think that we're looking for is this perfect church that's never going to slight us, but it says right here, no, one of the fruits of the spirit is patience. One of the fruits of the spirit, one of these godly traits is to be long suffering. And then if I can, if I just may, if God has been so long suffering with you in your sin, in your hard-heartedness towards him, in your rebellion, how dare we not show that same kind of forbearance and same kind of love and kindness, same kind of long-sufferingness, that same kind of patience when we're dealing with other people who are also sinful. So I have a story. There was a very pious individual that came to a preacher one day and, and they said, uh, Lord, uh, but Pastor, I, I lack patience. Would you please pray for me to have patience? And so the pastor said, absolutely. In fact, I'm going to pray for you right now. And the preacher replied and, and he began to, to pray and he said, Lord, please send great tribulation into this brother's life. To which that man quickly interrupted the pastor and said, no, 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 Pastor, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm not sure that you understood what I was saying. I'm, I need patience I don't want for you to pray for tribulation. And when the pastor reminded him of Romans 5.3 that says um, that we glory in tribulations knowing that in that tribulation that is what worketh patience in our hearts. 
And so understand that as we live with patience with one another, it means that we will be bearing affliction. And that brings us to the last part of this here, bearing with one another in love, forbearance. That's where patience finds legs. Patience is just the acclimated virtue of forbearance. Forbearance is the working out of said patience. This is, literally means to hold them up. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so Paul, in this section here, he calls us to live a manner worthy of the calling of which we have been called to. And then we ask the question, so what is that calling? He explains that this calling that we have been called to, if you have been called to it at all, is one of unity with one another, one of peace with one another. He tells us here, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, eagerly seeking those things. The the term eagerly here means to actively be participating and working towards that goal. You know, like when you were a kid, you were eager for Christmas. And so you would go to the Christmas tree and you would shake all the gifts and you would listen to them and and hear what was in there because you were eager to open it. Or you would go to the stockings on the mantelpiece or whatever and you would, you know, feel them, squish them to feel what was inside and see if you could understand what was hidden behind that layer of sock. And so what he's talking about here is this is what you were made for. If you have been called, then this is what you're called to. The second thing that he says here is we have to understand who it is who's giving us this information. This is not just Pastor John. This is not just Billy Bob. This is Paul. And even Paul would say, and I am nothing aside from the Holy Spirit which dwelleth within me. And so it is not only Paul, but this is written in God's holy word. And so it is God himself that is giving us this charge. And so this is a heavy charge this morning. This is a charge that we dare not neglect. And so when, when I say, when Paul says, when, when the term of today of this user manual is how do we use this thing called the body of believers? How are we supposed to participate in this? Listen, you were made for unity. We were made to be with one another. We were made to live in such a way as called to be humble and gentle, patience, bearing with one another in love and seeking to actively maintain the unity of this spirit in this bond of peace. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So let's maintain this because this is what we are made for. In Ephesians 2.14 it said that Christ himself was our peace. So naturally we must live in the same way. Second step in this user manual is that he is the means of our unity. And we always have to remember that. God is the means of our unity, not the color pews, not the kind of music, uh, not even the the, uh, charisma of the, the people in leadership, whether pastoral or elder or deacon or Sunday school teachers or light bearers volunteers as it goes with us. And so all those reasons are good reasons to stick around, but they're not the reason for unity. He is the means of unity. Look at Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 as we look at this. And, and this is going to be very clear to you, but I would, if you can still go with me, I'd like to pull some things out of it if we can, okay? So Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, 
One baptism, verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you notice any repetition in this verse? All is one of them. One is one of them. Pretty clear, right? And so even what Paul is talking about here is the reason for our unity, the means of our unity is God, is the gospel. And so uh, firstly, then let us simply rejoice in the oneness of God. And as we go through here, I want to talk about some of these things. So this body, uh, we are compared, the body of believers is compared to a body. Unity is intrinsic to Christianity and to God. So he compares us to a body. Think of your own body. Uh, We have all the parts that we need. None of us have extra parts, I, I hope. In fact, if we do have extra parts, then we understand that to be an anomaly. And we also understand that there is a loss if we don't have the parts that we're supposed to have. If somebody loses their ability to see or hear or loses a limb, we feel this drastically. And so comparing the church to the body in this passage helps us to understand that it is composed of many diverse parts and yet comes up to be one thing. Secondly, he talks here about the spirit. This Holy Spirit is what he's talking about. This Holy Spirit of God is what unites us together. You see, all of us may have different ways that we were brought to the saving knowledge of Christ Jesus, if that's you. And so all of us, and I've heard some of your testimonies. I've heard some of the conversion stories. And I praise God with you for what he's done in your lives. And, and, I, and, and just by the way, to really get to know each other well, Invite somebody here out to coffee or out to dinner sometime and just share your testimony. Share your testimony with one another. If you want to build unity and brotherly, sisterly affection for one another, that's how you do it. But I've heard your testimony, some of them. I've shared my testimony with most of you. But it's all by the same Spirit. All of us were born afresh by the same Spirit, which brings us to hope. This is not a blind, mindless, Disney magic, wishful desire that we talk about. Christ is returning. Christ will retrieve his bride, of which we are. And so as we know that hope to be true, the spirit that is in us also testifies to that that truth. And then we have one Lord, one faith. And so this Lord, there are not many lords, there is only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. That is the only name by which we herald our God King, our God Man, the savior of the human race, of all those who would come to him, of all those who are called for him. And he is what we are unified under. He is our Lord. There is one faith. Faith, sometimes we think of that subjectively or objectively, but the fact is, is that faith in Christ is what saves. This is the gospel. There is only one gospel. There is only one thing to have faith in, and that is Christ and his death on the cross. That is what unifies us. And of course, then his resurrection, claiming victory over that sin and death. And it says here in one baptism, maybe this is confusing to you. And maybe this is going to offend you. Now, as a good Southern Baptist seminary grad, I believe, and the Bible teaches, that full immersion is the proper method for practicing believers' baptism. However, That kind of baptism is not what this text is talking about necessarily. 
So let me just offend you for a minute. I don't care if you've been sprinkled or if you've been dunked. This baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so the question that I have for you is this. Have you been publicly pronounced in, by the witness of others that you believe in Christ Jesus? That's what this is talking about here. Also, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, I want to encourage you, happens at the moment that you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is not a second, third tier, special Christian thing. Like, you've got to go to seminary and have, you know, be anointed by the elders and then do some kind of other pilgrimage or something. No, no, no. The moment that you believe you are then baptized into this faith, this is what Paul is talking about here. And this is why he says one baptism, one faith, one Lord. And so that means even our brothers and sisters who practice a baptism of children that is different from the way that we baptize, that they can and are still Christians and are still saved because they're saved in this baptism. Because it's about Christ and what he's done for them. If that's confusing to you, because there's a bunch of theology and stuff behind that, then come and see me afterwards or we'll go out for coffee and I'll do my best to explain that to you. Um... Just understand what Paul is talking about here is the baptism of the Spirit. Believer's baptism. Have you been publicly recognized and identified with Christ? And then one God. God the Father who is over all things, through all things were created, who is in all things, who is everywhere as, as Miss Vogt talked about. That even kids can understand that God, uh, in his magnificence, in his largesse, can be everywhere all at once. And so it makes sense if Paul's saying this, if there's only one God, and there's only one Jesus, there's only one Holy Spirit, there can only be one church, because Jesus has only one bride. And so this church, Allegan Bible Church, is part of Church Universal when we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the globe. Those who are anywhere, people who are in China, people who are in Africa, people who are in South America, people who are in the far reaches of the northern coldness. I don't know geography, whatever, the top coldness, the North Pole, I don't know. But what he's saying here is because those are all one in Christ Jesus. And so then we as a body ought to be one here at Allegan Bible Church as well. That is how we use this user manual. And so the second part of this is he is the means to our union. So let us rejoice in the oneness of God, but also let us remember who it is to, we can serve. And if you have a watch alarm going off, please silence that, whoever that might be. Third step, we must minister in unity. So as we gather together, it is all of us who are doing ministry with one another. Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, uh, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So we must minister together. Here's some false patterns of ministry, and I hope that you uh, haven't found yourself in these. And we here at Allegan Bible Church, we seek to not 
do this, but here are some false patterns of ministry. Uh, one is called clericalism, which is basically all the work of the church is done by those who are paid to do it. So for us, that would be Drew and myself, and then that's it. We are responsible of doing everything. We're responsible of doing all the evangelism. We're responsible of doing all the equipping, all the teaching, all the facilitating. Any of those things is just for us. That's a wrong view of what the body of Christ looks like. Another wrong view is anti-clericalism, which basically sees those who are in paid leadership as just a space filler, that y'all don't really need us in any real category, and you'd be just as fine without us as you are with us. And often this is a kind of, of methodology that has been more popularized in recent years where we just have house churches where there's not one sense of leadership, but it's just kind of everybody comes together. Or there's dualism. Dualism is often what you see in churches which is basically uh, each has their own sphere. The lay people have their own things. The volunteers have their own things that they do. The paid people have their own things that they do, and they should not transgress the bounds that are ever between them. Those are false ministry patterns. What it says here, uh, according to my reading, is that grace was given to each of us in verse 7. Each of us. Myself and you, Drew and you, the volunteers who are in leader and teaching positions and you, and any and all of us have been given a grace, each one of us, it says, all of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift, which as we already have seen is not lacking. And so therefore it says that, that he has given these things out and we move down to verse 11 and 12, and he gave to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. And why did he give it to them? to equip the saints. Because who's supposed to do the work? The saints. Remember what we already talked about a while ago now. If Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus, who's a saint? Anyone who's saved by Christ Jesus. And so this is one gift giver with a multitude of gifts. So if you're curious and you want to know what your gift might be, if you're a note taker, I've put them on the notes, wherever the notes are. But there are five lists concerning gifts that are there. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians again, uh, 12, 28 through 30. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Ephesians 4, 11. And then uh, 1 Peter 4, 11. Now there are certain gifts that were for the birthing of the church, and then there are now gifts for the continuation of the church. Because of time, apostles, prophets, uh, those are ones of old that no longer exist in the strict sense that Paul was using here. And then there's evangelists, which continue today. And then we see shepherds and teachers, which could be pastors or Sunday school teachers, any of them in that category. And all of those things are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And this is not the only gifts. Like I said, there's other gifts that are there. And so I want you to read about those. I want you to find what your gifts are because these are not your gifts. They are Christ's gifts to you. And so then if that's the case, these gifts must be used or the church is abused. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to abuse the bride of Christ. And so how do we find out our gifts? Maybe that's your question. Well, first is we need to study what the Bible says about gifts. That's why I wrote those down for you. So if you want a copy of that, let me know. Study what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. Second thing we must do is pray. Pray for God to reveal to you what your spiritual gifts are. Look at Ephesians. It's not that he doesn't want you to use them. 
It's not that he doesn't want you to practice this. He is calling us to do these things. These gifts are given by Christ for the good of his bride, the body of which we are. Do you think that he will then be like, no, it's a secret, bro? No. He wants you to know them. So study what God's word says about it. Pray that we would know, because we don't know our hearts, right? You might think you have a spiritual gift because it's cool and it's up front or whatever. Second thing is to make a sober assessment of our spiritual strengths and abilities. You can do this by asking questions like, what is it that I like to do? Or what am I good at? Or what is bearing fruit in my life? But you can also do this as you seek wisdom from other Christians. Seek other mature Christians who you know in this congregation or otherwise and ask them. And ask them to keep an eye on you and watch you and see what spiritual fruit they see in your lives. And then... And then Give them the right to speak into your life. Give them the right to not get upset when they say, no, I, you know, I know that you like doing that, but it doesn't seem like that's your spiritual gift. Maybe you should try this because I've noticed that. Don't get offended. They're trying to help you and therefore help the body. Christ does not squander the things that he gives. Every single thing that he gives is essential to the body. Just think about it for a minute. You can't see my liver. But if it stops functioning, you will know. You can't see my heart or my lungs. But if they stop functioning, you will know. Every single gift Christ has given matters. And so also then, not only should we use these gifts, we should understand they're Christ's gifts. And so maybe you are given a gift. Maybe you are called to full-time ministry somewhere. Do not think that God's church will not move forward if somehow you are removed from the face of the planet. Preaching is not the end-all, be-all gift. Being a missionary is not the end-all, be-all gift. Preaching can only happen by those who have other spiritual gifts. Otherwise, this church wouldn't exist. It'd just be one guy talking to an empty room. That's called insanity, I think. So the unity of the body of Christ requires that we use these gifts for one another. Lastly, and and I think most importantly, and that's why he leaves it to the end here, we obtain maturity through this unity. We obtain maturity personally and corporately when we use these gifts. So remember at the beginning of this whole thing, if I lost you, user manuals, right? The whole reason for a user manual is so that the product itself or whatever that is, is used correctly. So it's used rightly. So you get the most out of it. So we obtain maturity through the body of believers being united in this one faith, one baptism, one God, one Lord, as we practice these things with one another. Ephesians four thirteen through 16. Until we all obtain, attain, I'm sorry, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Listen, do you understand that when you don't attach yourself to a good biblical body of believers, you are putting yourself in danger to be misled? And also, 
by the way, it is your duty as a body of believers to make sure that I, as the mouthpiece, am not misleading. But we obtain maturity through this because it says that as we continue to fulfill our roles in this body, then we are grown together in the knowledge of the Son of God. We're brought into maturity, into the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, that we may have our minds renewed and sharpened and not be given over to all these different ideologies and and crafty talking and deceitful doctrines. And it says in 15, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head. Uh, I'm sorry, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it is built up. So it builds itself up in love. So maybe you're here this morning and you've never asked, what is the purpose of the church? Like why? Out of all the things that he could have done, Jesus made a church. This is the purpose for his church. The purpose for his church is for us as individuals to be grown in spiritual maturity. When you think of the church, maybe you think of a mighty army engaged in great worldwide invasion and you're not necessarily wrong. Or maybe you think of an international social services agency caring for the sick and the weak and the hurting and you're not necessarily wrong. Or maybe you think of the church as a hospital where we come to nurse our wounds and recharge our batteries so we can go out and live life on our own again. And you're not necessarily wrong, but the real purpose of the church is unity of the faith, knowledge of Christ, and our own maturity in growing into who Christ wants us to be. Hebrews 5, 13 through 14, for everyone who loves milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those with their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You see, individualism is really the mark of immaturity. And so as we look at this, the other thing that is at stake here is our protection, our growth, and the glory of God. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition. You guys ever watch the Nature Channel or the Discovery Channel? If those things even ever exist anymore, I don't know. We don't have cable. We just live stream everything because, right, first world problems, right? And then I complain when the internet's not fast, right? That's you too, right? So anyway, they've got these uh, National Geographic things where this... This guy, we all know the guy. I don't know who he is, but I, 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 I know his voice. You know his voice, right? And, and I, I, I'm not going to try to do it. Anyway, so, you know, look at the African whatever, whatever it is. Anyway, the Nature Channel, the cheetahs and the lions and all that. How do they kill the zebra? How do they kill the water buffalo? How do they kill those things, right? They separate them from the pack. Every single time. Every time. They run into the pack they all freak out and run every which way. And then whatever one is stupid enough or lame enough or young enough, and isn't it usually the young one? 
which is a bummer, right? We all hate to see that. But isn't it, isn't it usually the young one? And why is it? Because they don't have the wisdom of the mature zebras to know there's strength in numbers. So they run off on their own and then they're devoured. You see, we can obtain maturity through unity as we practice this with one another. And, 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 and here's the point of all of this. Here's the church user manual. It's a two-step user manual. Don't do it by yourself. You're not supposed to. It's meant to be worked on with other people to give the strength where you are weak to help sharpen you and build you. And then the end result of this, this is how the product functions. You have a working thing and you are all at peace in the love of Christ with one another. This is the user manual. This is how it's supposed to function. This is how the church is built. This is why church exists. This is how you use church. And so if you come to church day after day with simply the ideology of saying, hey, I'm going to come today and I'm going to worship and I'm going to be fed and then I'm going to leave, this is the user manual. We are made for unity in the body of believers. He is the means by which we can even hope to gain that unity. And as we do church and as we do life together, we must use the gifts that he has given, his gifts to us, that by the way, he empowers us to use for the ministry of one another. And we can obtain the fullness of Christ. Is, this, is that what you want? I mean, is the fullness of Christ truly what you want? Because if it is, it functions in this kind of context. This is what Calvin said, and I'll close with this. If we want to be considered members of Christ, let no man or woman, you, whatever, if we want to be considered members of Christ, let no one be anything for themselves, but let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of each other. That is the user manual. That is what Paul starts out. He's done all this theology. Now he's going to start with the application for the church. And that's where he starts. He said, before we go into anything, before we go into the spiritual warfare, before we go into the new identity, before we go into parenting, before we go into talking about, um, uh, did I say marriage already? Wives and husbands. Before we go into any of that other stuff, we need to talk about the church. Because without the church, all the rest of that falls apart. Because the church and how we function together is how maturity in Christ happens. Because I don't know about you, but I'm going to irritate you. And that's, that's both a promise and a warning. But I hope that by the grace of God, you will choose to confront me if it is sin or accept it out of love if it is truth in love so that both of us might be grown to maturity, so that both of us might be like Christ. Amen. Because it's for his glory. And let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you. We thank you for your long-suffering, for your patience with us. We thank you that in your wisdom you have given us one another. We thank you that there is no perfect church because there's no perfect people and that you're constantly in the business of working on us through this body of believers. So we ask that we would constantly go back to this Bible, this user manual, 
As I've heard other people say, Bible could stand for basic instructions before leaving earth. And so often we just come and we look at the pictures that it has in it or we browse over it very briefly and then we throw it in the drawer, hoping that the end result will be that which we desire. But this is your living, active word. You have called us to so much greater. Help us to practice these things that we might be built up in you. It's for your name and your glory we pray. Amen.